Tonight, art historian, curator, and educator Aaron Corrales-Diaz is here to discuss John Walker's epic painting, The Battle of Gettysburg, Repulse of Longstreet's Assault, July 3rd, 1863. It's presented, or the lecture is presented in conjunction with our current exhibition, Subscription Campaigns, Contributions in Support of Community, and its ancillary installation, Subscribing to History, which is located in the sitting room just next to the membership office here on the first floor. Um, both the exhibition and the installation were curated by Dr. Charlotte Emmons-Moore, our Polly Thayer Star Fellow in American Art. And I encourage you to take a moment after the lecture tonight, or better yet, come back another day to see both the exhibition and the installation um, so that you can take your time with the materials. Erin is the new Assistant Curator of American Art at the Worcester Art Museum. She comes to Massachusetts from South Carolina, where she's been serving as curator of the Johnson Collection and as a visiting scholar of art history at Wofford and Converse Colleges. Her research has been supported by numerous institutions, including the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Art Museum, and Winterthur Museum Garden and Library. Erin received her doctorate at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in 2016 with a dissertation titled Remembering the Veteran, Disability, Trauma, and the American Civil War, 1861-1915. Prior to earning her doctorate, she served as a curatorial fellow at Shelburne Museum in Vermont, which gives me the distinct honor of being able to say I knew her when. <laughs> And since I can say I knew her when, I can attest that Erin's dedication to the exploration of diverse perspectives in her research and teaching promises to benefit us all through her work at Worcester Art Museum and in the cultural sector here in Massachusetts. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Erin Corrales-Diaz to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Hannah. That was such a lovely introduction. And I am so happy to be here to talk about one of my favorite paintings in the Johnson Collection. A decade after the Battle of Gettysburg, John Badger Batchelder described the lure of the landscape to the tourist. The traveler now studies the towering eminences, the rocky ravines, the woody coverts, the open fields, the meandering waters, and all the vast region over with destruction and death held carnival for three long days and with an intensity of interest which the simple charms of nature would never have aroused. Nature's picturesque beauty could not hold sway to the dramatic confrontation of the nation's bloody sectional conflict an impulse Batchelder realized could be transmitted to canvas. As the owner of James Walker's The Battle of Gettysburg, Repulse of Longstreet's Assault, July 3rd, 1863, Batchelder professed the monumental canvas a great national painting. In this sensational rendition of the third day of the battle, Walker transports the viewer to the front lines immersed in the intense and slaughterous aftermath of Pickett's charge. Large plumes of smoke rise above the whirlwind of battle with Union units rushing forward to meet the Confederate advance and dead and wounded men, horses and debris scattered on the field. Batchelder intended the Battle of Gettysburg to transcend the still raw sectional divide through Walker's truthful and fair representation. And both artist and patron made the conscientious decision, quote, that no troops of no one state should receive any undue prominence. Concerned about inaccurate depictions of Civil War battles, especially in the illustrated weeklies, Batchelder wanted to portray modern warfare to educate the public about the realities on the battlefield and to promote battlefield preservation. In so doing, 
Walker's painting, and Batchelder's showmanship help shape our modern-day conceptions about the high watermark of the Confederacy. Additionally, Batchelder's Barnum-esque approach to mass culture transformed the American history painting tradition, a tradition most art historians state failed to adequately depict the universal quality of the Civil War into a visual spectacle of the panorama that would delight and instruct. Throughout this next hour, we will trace the history of Walker's picture from its inception to its current home in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We'll consider how a work of art can change meaning over time as a result of shifting perceptions and a reception of a historical moment which, in the case of Walker's The Battle of Gettysburg, led to both its success and its eventual demise in the public eye. <clears throat> the origins of Walker's massive painting lay with the New Hampshire-born artist and historian John Batchelder. Although he never enlisted in the Civil War due to a medical exemption, Batchelder did decide to follow the Union Army of the Potomac as a civilian, sketching and interviewing participants, which culminated in this well-known print of the Army of the Potomac. Yet, Batchelder desired to, quote, wait for the great battle for which would naturally decide the contest, study its topography on the field, and learn its details from the actors themselves, and eventually prepare its written and illustrated history. An opportunity arose when his army contacts alerted him that General Robert E. Lee had moved out of Virginia and into Pennsylvania. He arrived either on July 5th or the 7th, the accounts vary, and immediately began an on-site study of the events and the principles involved. Traversing the terrain on horseback, Batchelder conducted detailed sketches of the landscape that he would use as points of reference when interviewing wounded soldiers at local hospitals. In some instances, he even invited invited soldiers of both sides to return to the battlefield to identify where their regiments had fought. Over two decades later, Batchelder would recall the intense 84 days on the battlefield. Quote, I spent the entire winter visiting every regiment, holding conversations with its officers and with privates in many cases submitted to them the drawings I had made of the field and had them corroborate and complete the position of the troops upon it. The result was an isometric map which showed the troop positions on all three days of the battle. The map was an immediate success. Local papers proclaimed it was the most perfect battlefield drawing ever published and a work of great national importance and of peculiar interest to every patriotic Pennsylvanian. Part of the popular appeal resulted from the detail and expansiveness of the bird's eye view of the battlefield, a perspective attractive to American print consumers in the mid-19th century. Depending upon the level of tinted color applied, the cost of Batchelder's isometric map ranged from $8 to $16, a premium price assuaged by General Meade's signature endorsement at the bottom of the border. Using newspapers to stimulate interest, Batchelder advertised the sale of his map and suggested that it was well adapted to framing and forms a suitable ornament for the library, hall, dining, or sitting room. He even requested disabled soldiers to serve as canvassing agents from town to town for an additional dose of legitimacy 
and to appeal to public sentiment. Yet for all the publicity surrounding the map, Batchelder remained dissatisfied. Although the map offered a revolutionary viewpoint in which to interpret troop positions, it also presented a dehumanized battle, one removed from violence and combat of war. In order to portray the vast array of emotions experienced on the battlefield, Batchelder commissioned noted history painter James Walker to transcribe the portraiture of the field to canvas. Walker obtained recognition for his history pictures of the Mexican-American War and had served as a staff artist for the Union Army, seen here with Harper's Weekly sketch artist Theodore Davis. Born in England, Walker came to the United States as a young child around 1824 when his family settled outside of Albany, New York. Little is known about his formal training, though the sophistication of his paintings reveals an understanding of academic principles. By the mid-1840s, he was living in Mexico City where he began to execute genre works based on colonial Mexican heritage. At the onset of the Mexican-American War in 1846, enemy lines trapped Walker for six weeks, the only American painter present in the city during its siege. After escaping to territory held by American forces, the artist was recruited into service as an interpreter for General Winfield Scott. It was in this role that Walker found himself a witness at the storming of Chapultepec. The sketches he made of that conflict would later serve as the foundation for one of his most important works, a large-scale commission for the U.S. Senate building. So sometime in 1864, Batchelder engaged Walker to paint the Battle of Gettysburg. While the artistic rendering of the subject is due to the genius of Mr. Walker, according to Batchelder, the configuration was all the historians. Batchelder's meticulous research and Walker's precise technical skill combined produced an epic visual record of the event, including regimental positions, combat vignettes, Union and Confederate soldiers, noble steeds, victory, and defeat. And it caught everyone's attention, with newspapers providing regular updates on the status of Walker's paintings, or his progress of the painting. And on March 14, 1870, the Battle of Gettysburg debuted at the Alfred A. Childs Gallery at 127 Tremont Street in Boston. No less than five major Boston newspapers lauded the work's sweep and substance, praising its, quote, remarkable minuteness and comprehensiveness and fidelity. The sheer scale of the artwork, seven and a half by 20 feet, transports the viewer to the front lines on the third day of this battle, an attraction that was popular with both the general public and veterans alike. Admission ranged from 25 to 50 cents with discounts for scholars, veterans, and school children. And Batchelder would preside with scheduled lectures animating the painting. Viewers, uh, visitors would often come armed with opera glasses to make out the minute detail in the panorama and then purchase a descriptive key for sale at the door. Batchelder's efforts paid off and over 20,000 people came to see the Battle of Gettysburg during its presentation in Boston. However, Walker had to contend with another gigantic composition of the battle in 1870. Peter F. Rothermel's 16 by 32 feet, the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge, which is currently housed in the State Museum of Pennsylvania. 
Both Rothermel and Walker toured the battlefield with General Hancock, completing intensive studies of the landscape and interviewing former soldiers. What began as a friendly rivalry became a cutthroat competition. Walker completed the canvas first, and Batchelder immediately began to promote his painting over Rothermel's. In the introduction to the descriptive key, Batchelder describes how Walker avoids the stereotypical battle scene, quote, not unfrequently indulged and in even now by some would-be battle scene painters of the present day, a not-so-subtle jab at Rothermel's canvas and the composition. So despite Batchelder's attempts to belittle Rothermel's painting, this would-be battle scene painter, not Walker, received the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's $25,000 commission for the panorama. Rothermel's painting also went on tour throughout the nation, including a stop in Boston, and it received notable attention when it was controversially exhibited at the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Between the two Battle of Gettysburg artworks, Rothermel's reflects the painter's own northern sensibilities and sentiments by staging the battle scene from the north, a perspective that had the potential to alienate southern sympathizers. Nevertheless, the combination of the immense scale public art patronage, and a permanent home in the State Museum in Harrisburg in 1894 led Rothermel's painting to maintain a greater presence in the national arena. Following the Battle of Gettysburg's first public appearance, critics responded to Walker and Batchelder's collaborative efforts with divided reactions. Most of the criticism fell into two categories. Those who felt that the painting's truthfulness and accuracy uh, led it to being an important historical document, and others uh, who believed that the adherence to authenticity brought about its failure as a work of fine art. So one art reviewer for the New York Times argued that Batchelder's insistence on reality over fiction eliminated the possibility for artistic interpretation. And as a result, the painting suffered. The writer concluded that, quote, as a work of art, therefore, the painting must occupy a secondary rank. Another journalist questioned the removal of the viewer's imagination in the painting, stating that, quote, in this respect, as a work of art, the Battle of Gettysburg differs materially from that of the old masters. In some cases, Batchelder's factual compositions became one of, quote, the painting's decided faults. The principal weakness of the picture is in the figures of its foreground, which are as a rule of a wooden rigidity, which is nearly hopeless and quite encumbered by their surface smooth area. Of course, criticism is subjective, and another commentator really quite liked the figures in the foreground um, and appreciated the positioning of prominent officers uh, in that space, saying, noting that this was a usual technique for conventional battle paintings. This broad commentary regarding a tension between a documentary-like precision and artistic originality and interpretation mirrors the general failure of artists painting history scenes of the American Civil War. But painters' difficulties in capturing the immediacy and universality of war often resulted in a viewing public unwilling to purchase an artwork of the bloody event. Now, this was not quite the case with large-scale populist works like panorama or cyclorama paintings. The general public, including veterans, found the meticulous features of Batchelder's research a characteristic worthy of praise. A Gettysburg veteran visitor declared that the painting, quote, is truthful to its minutest detail. To gaze upon this canvas brings back with vividness the struggle that sealed the fate of the Confederacy. 
It needs only the thunder of the cannon and the rattle of musketry to make it real. For many audience members, the harrowing veracity of the details signified the Battle of Gettysburg's artistry. The painting presents a topographic sweep of the 25 square mile landscape spanning Cemetery Hill and the Round Tops with the viewer positioned looking west at 3.30 in the afternoon. Very specific. Walker depicts the aftermath of Pickett's Charge, a failed Confederate advance that posited over 12,000 infantrymen in an open field for three quarters of a mile under heavy Union artillery. Often perceived as a desperate gambit by General Lee, the ill-fated attack would mark the last time the Confederacy fought on Northern soil and is frequently cited as a turning point in the Civil War. Representing over 309 regiments and 78 batteries, Walker strove with Batchelder's guidance to present all states and regiments equally, thus bolstering a claim for national appeal. The painting's subtitle, Repulse of Longstreet's Assault, however, is a northern term for the advance, suggesting perhaps a bias on behalf of the patron. The painting centers on the focal point of the Confederate assault in the vicinity of what today are known as the Copse and the Bloody Angle. While the monumentality of the Battle of Gettysburg provides viewers with an immersive experience, Walker strategically incorporated detailed vignettes to provide spotlight, uh, spotlight focus that makes the painting more tangible and accessible. The composition has elements of a classic triptych, with Meade and his officers dominating the center, flanked on either side by artillery advancing into the fray. Reading the painting from left to right, the grouping in the immediate foreground depicts the mortally wounded Confederate General Lewis Armistead, handing a Union aide his pocket watch. Armistead intended the timepiece for his friend, the Union General Winfield Scott Hancock, represented where the arrow is, uh, just to the right of the round tops on a rearing horse after enduring a serious wound to his thigh. Such a poignant moment came to symbolize the lost cause influenced perspective of the war that assumed a fair balance between the two factions. To the right of center, Major General George Meade, Commander-in-Chief of the Army of the Potomac, silhouetted against illuminated dust and holding a pair of binoculars, watch as his men drove the Confederates away. And to the far right of Lieutenant William Wheeler's regiment are Confederate prisoners of war being led off the battlefield. Mirroring the romantic mythology of the Brothers' War, this vignette depicts a Union soldier holding out a canteen to the captives as they pass beyond the frame of the canvas. Highlighting the importance of mutually heroic Union and Confederate soldiers fighting for equally just causes not only obscured the war's horrific realities, but also undermined the role of slavery in the sectional conflict. The Battle of Gettysburg then, despite the proclamations of accuracy, uh, attempted to appease both sides. Batchelder's theatrics thrilled audiences with his description of the decisive moment that kept the nation united and not divided. The painting intended to both delight and instruct, promoted and influenced how Americans uh, how Americans remembered the war and the battle, one of mutual honor, courage, and sacrifice. One advertisement for the painting stated, it teaches more about the battle in 15 minutes than can, than can be learned in months of study. And this was a point of view even advocated by Maine superintendent of schools who felt that the painting was, quote, especially worthy of being presented to the eyes of our youth. Veterans as well were significant supporters of the painting, either sponsoring fundraising events or even visiting the artist in his New York studio. One such veteran 
was General James Longstreet. Often blamed for the failure at Gettysburg, Longstreet visited Walker's studio in 1868. He examined the unfinished painting for several hours before turning to face the artist with a sad smile, saying, there's where I came to grieve. Mentioned in Batchelder's descriptive key to the painting, this anecdote resplendent with pathos indicates the painting's transcendence from a record of the battle into a device to cope with traumatic memories. Soon after the painting's debut in Boston, Batchelder took the masterpiece on the road, traveling across the country. Once the Battle of Gettysburg left the Alfred A. Childs Gallery, the painting went on view throughout New England, including Springfield, Massachusetts, and Burlington and Montpelier in Vermont, to great fanfare. Although, as an aside, it really failed to excite audiences in Rutland, Vermont. It was not a success there. <laughs> Walker's canvas went as far north as Maine, as far south as Washington, D.C., and even going to Topeka, Kansas, where it was on view in a department store in the early 20th century. The touring exhibition was usually uh, displayed in a venue more akin to the theater than a museum, often taking place in city halls, music halls, or GAR posts. The admission fee would cover the lecture and close viewing of the painting, but as a shrewd businessman, Batchelder offered visitors an opportunity to purchase memorabilia, such as guidebooks, descriptive keys, and small-scale print reproductions to commemorate their visit. The souvenir industry around Walker's panoramic painting enabled Americans to remember the sectional divide even decades after the conclusion of the war from the confines of their own homes. An initial souvenir might have been the outline key, often hung near the painting for reference, Compressing the colossal panorama into 18 inches, the key documented over 200 individuals, regiments, and local landmarks. Free to consumers upon the receipt of a three-cent stamp or for sale at the door of the exhibition, the outline key encouraged an alternative viewing strategy for patrons to linger over the details. Now, in the case that visitors desired additional information about each reference, Batchelder also published a 44-page book, quote, for the convenience of such persons as merely wish a description of the painting itself with the formation of troops engaged and a brief account of their movements. Offered at various price points from 25 cents to $5 for a gilt-bound table book, the descriptive key supported Batchelder's position as an authority on the Battle of Gettysburg. End and front pages included authenticating testimonial letters about the painting from high-ranking generals at Gettysburg, such as Meade and Longstreet. Yet no souvenir was in such demand as the steel engraving. After the painting had been on view for 31 months, Batchelder decided to have the panorama rendered as a commercial print. According to a subscription book, Batchelder initially intended the image to be executed as a lithograph but he changed his mind and opted for a steel engraving instead. In order for the engravers to accurately transfer Walker's composition to the plate, Batchelder commissioned the artist to paint a smaller version of the Battle of Gettysburg. This canvas, a mere quarter of the original, currently resides in the New Hampshire Historical uh, Society. And H.B. Hall Jr., part of the engraving firm H.B. Hall and & Sons, and a Civil War veteran, executed the print. Much like the descriptive key, the engraving was offered at different price points, 
from $7.50 to a limited edition artist proof for $100. But unlike other of the Gettysburg publications, the steel engraving was available only through subscription or a publication campaign and Batchelder had considerable success in marketing the print, totaling nearly a 1,000 subscribers, including Generals Meade and Hooker. Small and largely affordable, this print, Batchelder hoped, would hang in every American home, school, and library. In creating an exclusive parlor engraving, Batchelder effectively transformed the panoramic painting into a portable souvenir of experience and an endorsement of the self-proclaimed historian of Gettysburg's interpretation of the battle. The print's diminished scale, its miniaturization, projects nostalgic qualities of nationalism, patriotism, and control into a domesticated object palpable to a wide audience. The intimacy of the print offers a vision of a still and perfect universe, an instance of equal heroism on both sides and a successful resolution. For Americans unable to visit Walker's original painting or were outside of its touring destinations, the steel engraving offered an alternative viewing experience. In 1878, a Mr. Yates from Wilmington, North Carolina, exhibited the finest steel engraving ever brought to the city. And in 1900, the Wilmington Light Infantry received a gift of the print from a Confederate veteran. Employing techniques comparable to P.T. Barnum, Batchelder's souvenir industry cultivated his persona and promoted tourism of the battlefield. Yet, some individuals resented Batchelder's hold on the public's imagination regarding Gettysburg. One former soldier decried the Gettysburg historian as a, quote, loudmouth, blatant photographer artist who made people buy an avalanche of propaganda. Despite some criticism, Batchelder's vision prevailed uh, on how we, to this day, remember Gettysburg's place in the Civil War. Ultimately, Batchelder's goal for Walker's painting and its subsequent publications was the preservation and memorialization of the battlefield. His traveling exhibition and lectures got the attention of the federal government, and in 1880, Congress awarded Batchelder $50,000 to write the history of the battle and produce revised maps. And it was around the same time Batchelder joined the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, or the GBMA, an organization tasked with protecting the grounds and erecting monuments or markers. And soon thereafter, he was appointed superintendent of tablets and legends. He worked closely with veterans, taking them on tours throughout the battlefield and would then have the former soldiers tell him how their individual stories fit into his overarching narrative. Batchelder then became the final judge for the placement of the monuments, a role that he would later be criticized for his sometimes arbitrary decisions. Walker's canvas traveled less uh, while Batchelder wrote his history of the battle and deepened his involvement with the GBMA. And in 1894, he caught pneumonia and the painting passed hands to its second owner, James Drummond Ball of Boston, Massachusetts. The publisher of the steel engraving, Ball continued Batchelder's sensational showmanship to publicize Walker's painting with bombastic zeal. Although he obtained the painting after Batchelder's death, it was not until the early 20th century that he began to take the painting on the road. Often Ball exhibited the panorama in department store auditoriums across the country. 
Now, this might be a concept uh, that's peculiar to our 21st century eyes, but early department stores strove to lure customers to spend the entire day inside through elaborate window displays or promotional events like the Battle of Gettysburg. While Ball gave free descriptive lectures of the battle, usually six times a day, advertisements hawked goods like GAR badges nearby at the jewelry counter that catered to visitors of the painting. Ball also maintained Batchelder's extensive Gettysburg publications, including the steel engraving eventually published under the guise of the historical art and national art companies. Whereas the artist proof of the steel engraving cost $100 in the late 19th century, Ball discounted the price and encouraged consumers to view the print as an investment. One advertisement declared, in a short time, every owner of this engraving will hold it at many times the present price. No longer solely a souvenir, the print could be, according to this ad, a gift suitable for birthdays, weddings, or holiday occasions. Customers in certain demographics, such as veterans and teachers, receive special offers on the print to increase sales and boost interest in the work. Under Ball's ownership in the early 20th century, the Battle of Gettysburg entered a, another struggle, one that determined how Americans would remember the war decades after reunion. For the semi-centennial of the Civil War, the painting summarized the idealization of soldiers' heroism and personal sacrifice for one's beliefs, all the while obscuring the war's motive. Veterans on both sides of the war could purchase the print or view the painting as a triumphal commemoration of brotherly forgiveness. But by 1917, the Battle of Gettysburg took on a new meaning as a result of America's entry into the First World War. At the New York store in Indianapolis, the painting became a recruiting device, a means of inspiring young men to enlist in the fight abroad. Even the language in the advertisement appealed to one's patriotism, enabling audience members to connect the current conflict to Civil War soldiers' heroism at Gettysburg. Officers of the United States Navy and National Guard operated a recruiting station near the painting to, quote, answer inquiries concerning the service and to receive applications for those wishing to enlist. Ball also gave private viewings to officials and Army officers to promote new recruits and encourage soldiers on active duty. Around the same time, Ball endeavored to turn Batchelder's vision of a great national painting into a reality. He lobbied congressmen to put forth a bill to purchase the Battle of Gettysburg and permanently install it in the newly constructed Lincoln Memorial. On January 6, 1916, Senator Duncan Fletcher of Florida proposed that the Senate appropriate $150,000 to acquire the painting. The Grand Army of the Republic of the Department of the Potomac strongly recommended and respectfully urged the Senate to pass the bill, declaring that no expense is too great for such a record of American valor. While Congress deliberated, Senator Luke Lee of Tennessee arranged for Ball to bring the painting to Washington, D.C. It was on view in room 132 of the U.S. Senate Office Building for inspection by Congress and the public. Fourteen additional paintings by Walker hung throughout the Capitol and the War Department, a suggestion that Walker's monumental uh, Gettysburg canvas belonged in the nation's capital. A journalist from Alabama saw the painting at the Senate office building. 
And although noting that the Battle of Gettysburg was a marvel, his companion declared, I'd like it better if it was painted from Lee's headquarters instead of Meade's. So clearly battle lines were still being drawn between the North and the South. The bill did not pass. So after the failure to sell the painting, Ball and his traveling exhibitions stop in the early 1920s, and the Battle of Gettysburg fades from historical record. Perhaps this was because cinema superseded panoramic paintings as the era's sensational mass media, or it might have been due to the diminished interest uh, in the Civil War. It was decades later when Howard S. Berger from Brookline, Massachusetts, discovered the painting removed from its stretcher and rolled up. Unexhibitable in its current state, the new owner sought about having it conserved with the Oliver Brothers firm in 1962. The conservation process was an immense undertaking. Unfurled, the painting took up nearly the entire first floor of the firm's 30 Ipswich Street studio, and it would take several months to complete. So here we have conservator Carl, uh, Carol Wales undertaking a delicate and lengthy procedure of stabilizing the Battle of Gettysburg and repainting areas of loss. Following the painting's con uh, conservation, it would go on view at the Vos galleries, albeit with some difficulty. The sheer size of the canvas on a new stretcher meant that the window in the conservation studio had to be removed, and they airlifted the painting from the Oliver Brothers firm to Vos galleries. So Vos sold the painting in 1969 to a new owner, J.P. Altmeyer of Mobile, Alabama. Up until the late 1960s, the Battle of Gettysburg had not been farther south than Washington, D.C. With Altmeyer, the painting incorporates a southern context into its object biography. Here, southern heroism takes center stage over the decisive battle of the war on slavery. From 1969 to 1971, the canvas was exhibited in Mobile, Alabama, at the First National Bank, and then the Fine Arts Museum of the South. But for most of the time, the panorama was on view in Altmeyer's law office in Mobile. Now, the painting did make a notable reappearance in 1990 with Ken Burns's acclaimed miniseries, The Civil War. Here we see Burns and Shelby Foote posed in front of the Battle of Gettysburg for a Newsweek photo shoot. After Altmeyer passed away in 1999, his widow decided to sell the enormous painting and asked Rob Hicklin of the Charleston Renaissance Gallery to help her find a buyer. And in 2004, with assistance from the Charleston Renaissance Gallery, and here is Rob Hicklin uh, in Spartanburg with the painting, the Johnson family, George and Susie Johnson, my former employers, purchased the Battle of Gettysburg. Despite conservation efforts in the 1960s, the painting needed a thorough cleaning and some in-painting. Conservators removed the aging varnish and retouched areas of loss that are visible in these photographs as white patches. Hicklin also commissioned New York frame maker Mark Davis to craft a wood and composition frame in a 19th century style. In the flat panel of the frame, Davis included icons reflective of war rifles, wagon wheels, soldiers' ammunition pouches. On the latter, Davis added the initials SC to commemorate the painting's new home in South Carolina. Now, the combined weight of the painting and the frame is over 1,400 pounds, so that just sort of puts things in perspective here. Um, now, although the family had acquired the painting a few months earlier, it was not until July 7th, 2004, that the Battle of Gettysburg found its new home in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And so these are some um, 
photographs of that move in 2004. So for the next 12 years, the painting stayed in the lobby of the Advance America headquarters, a former company owned by the Johnson family. At the time, it was one of the few buildings the Johnsons owned that could house such a monumental canvas. After its arrival at Advance America, the painting was roped off, an outline key was displayed nearby at an easel, and an audio box that unfortunately is cropped out of this picture, but it's to the left, offered a lecture similar to what Batchelder would have given almost 150 years ago. Yet the painting's location was far from ideal. So these are my Wofford College students. Little did they know that they would end up in a Boston Athenaeum lecture. So when I took my, my college students to see the panorama in fall of 2015, the flaws became quite apparent. The building, while open to the public, was not readily accessible. One had to be buzzed in, immediately creating a barrier. Uh, nor were the conditions ideal to viewing the work. The lighting was dim, and the glare from the sun at certain times of day obstructed details. The audio tour no longer worked, uh, and as a place of business, crowds would gather in the lobby, preventing close looking and difficulty when giving tours. So it was around this time that the Johnson family began to consider alternative locations to accommodate an artwork of such a grand scale. In an effort to increase the painting's visibility and maximize its potential as a teaching tool, Spartanburg Library leadership and the Johnson family initiated a public-private partnership. We commissioned a local architectural firm, Macmillan, Padson Smith, to construct a space on the southern end of the library's third floor, where the painting would have its own room, uh, tinted windows, museum quality lighting, and most importantly, it would be accessible to the nearly 55,000 visitors to the library a month. The architects created a recessed pocket for the painting so it would rest uh, in uh, and sort of safely support the weight of the frame. So this, this pocket makes a little more sense when you see the construction of the room. So a few months before the move, we brought the team leaders who are represented here uh, of Bonsai Fine Arts. Uh, they are a Maryland-based art handling firm to scope out the logistics in person. Uh, and so this included detailed inspections at the painting's current location uh, and this new room, as well as walking a couple of the blocks between the Advance America building and the public library. Essentially, they wanted to sort of visualize what kind of obstacles they might face during the move. And as a result of this, they actually brought two extra guys for the move. So we had nine people working on the painting and moving it. So the two-day move started on April 23rd, 2016. The crew carefully removed the painting from its frame, disassembled the frame into four parts, and wrapped the painting in plastic. And I love this photograph of Scott uh, from Bonsai Fine Arts sort of reaching through the, the frame to, to grab a pad. Uh, and here, the painting is wrapped uh, and being led out of the lobby of the Advance America building. Uh, and then the next step was putting the painting onto a climate-controlled truck that was then driven a few blocks to the library. All right. And so here, here's the, the vehicle. So that concluded the first day. All right. And it took all day. I was there. It was all day. Um, the next day began at the library. And that began with carefully sort of handling the painting and the frame segments up to the second floor by hand. Okay. Uh, and you might also note in some of these photographs that most of the crew of Bonsai have decided not to wear gloves. This was a really conscious decision on behalf of Bonsai. They felt that they uh, would have a better sort of grip on the painting and the frame in doing so. Um, but they, every time they do one of these moves, they always evaluate whether they want to use gloves or bare hands and whatever would be the safest for the work of art. 
Uh, so they're carrying up the parts of the frame, and next came a really nerve-wracking part of carrying the painting up the stairs, right? So a long time we sort of decided, well, would we airlift it into the library? What are we going to do? We decided to carry it. As you can see, it was a close call. Oh my goodness gracious. So there it is being led up through the, the, the stairs, okay? It arrived. All, all was well. Uh, so the next step then was reassembling the frame and then attaching the painting back to the frame. Okay, and then the crew needed to put the painting, and again, remember how much this picture weighs with the frame, into this pocket. And you'll also note that the pocket does not go flush to the frame. That's important because you'll see as the two guys on the ladders, there actually had to be enough room that their hands could get beyond the frame and actually, you know, secure the painting to the wall, right? Um, so this is the final result, right? Uh, it becomes this dynamic space that paced, uh, placed the painting uh, as a focal point in an environment not unlike the original intent by Batchelder. And here's another view from across the library. So thousands of visitors now to the library can take in the site of the painting. Um, and actually, there's another window in the work as well. You can't see it, but as you're in the stacks, you can actually also see the painting. So there's a lot of visibility here. Um, and once again, my Wofford students, little did they know they would end up in a PowerPoint again, um, completely changed the viewing experience. So this was the next year, uh, and it was on a lesson on panoramic paintings. Uh, and as you can see, it's so much more focused, the lighting is better, and it, strangely, it's almost an intimate space despite being in a communal setting. Now, in the hands of the library staff, um, the, they created interactive touch screens that allowed visitors to learn more about the painting, such as the various details, to hear an audio tour, and to browse digital versions of the descriptive key. Currently, the Johnson family is in the process of donating the painting to the library, and by extension, to the town of Spartanburg, South Carolina. James Walker's The Battle of Gettysburg, Repulse of Longstreet's Assault, July 3rd, 1863, transformed the narrative of the high watermark of the Confederacy, incited a movement for battlefield preservation, acted as a site of memory for political reunification and collective experience, and became a rallying cry for patriotic support and enlistment. Through the painting's processual changes, it suggests that an artwork's meaning is far from static, constantly evolving as a result of shifting political, social, and cultural ideologies. Yet in its current home in a public library, the Battle of Gettysburg moves beyond its southern associations and assumes, or rather reassumes, its stature as a great national painting. Thank you.